Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them. And most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. My guest on this episode is Dr Harriet Allen. Harriet is a postdoctoral researcher at Queen Mary University London and her area of expertise is your friend and mine, the noble platelet. As many of you know, platelets are the tiny little fragments of cells that float around in the blood, plugging holes and promoting blood clotting at sites of injury. They are much more than simple inanimate objects that plug holes. They're busy, they're active, complex machines that perform loads of functions. Interestingly, the megakaryocyte platelet system is unique to some mammals. They aren't found in birds, and hence by extension we know that they weren't in dinosaurs. If you want to know more about why birds are dinosaurs, I'll put, you, uh, I'll put a link to a great podcast series in the show notes. And incidentally, uh, birds produce nucleated thrombocytes rather than platelets. So it's thought that the evolution of the mammal placenta, known as an invasive hemochoral placenta, required platelets. And I've just learned while researching this that fertilization in women is associated with mild thrombocytopenia due to secretion of embryo-derived platelet-activating factor, and that maternal 5-HT, otherwise known as serotonin, is essential for development of early mouse, mouse embryos, 5-HT being supplied by platelets. Platelets have lots of other roles, especially in inflammation and in immunity, and are even thought to have direct parasite-killing activity in malaria. So anyway, these are fascinating little things, and Harriet spent her PhD and subsequent studies investigating how they age and why that's important. This is a fantastic interview, and Harriet is brilliant, so I really hope you enjoy listening. Okay, welcome back to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by Harriet Allen, who is a postdoc researcher at Queen Mary University in London and is a veritable expert on platelets. Welcome, Harriet. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, so we're going to get on to talk about your really interesting work on platelet aging um, and various other things that you did during your PhD and then subsequently. Um, but I thought we could probably just start with talking about platelets and what they are. Um, for dummies um, because most of my medical colleagues uh, know that they're important as a number but haven't the foggiest how they work. So just tell me what a platelet is and basically how it works. Yeah of course so um, platelets are very small blood cells um, that are important for blood clotting so when you cut yourself um, they will stick together um, and form a clot and prevent you from bleeding out Um, but they're also um, have a role in uh, thrombosis so um, in uh blah, blah, blah. <laughs> in cases where there's like um inflammation they might become more reactive and then stick together and then um cause the occlusion of a blood vessel and that can lead to have you having a heart attack or a stroke and um, they also have many other roles in inflammation and immunity um, but their primary role is in uh, blood clotting 
I think that immune role is really interesting. Do you know do you know much more about that? I think I've read things before where platelets are sort of directly involved in immunity rather than just sort of the, the inflammatory process around it. Yeah, so I think it's a very much an emerging field right now. Um, a lot of people are interested in their role in um, inflammation, um, but the, um, they can form complexes with um, other um, blood cells, so you might with neutrophils or monocytes, um, but they also um, secrete a lot of inflammatory molecules. Um, so uh, researchers actually think that they are now considered an um, immune cell rather than just being part of the hematopoietic. Um, hemostasis system okay um i think a lot of people think that platelets are sort of inanimate objects that just float around and, and plug gaps but they, they clearly aren't they're clearly very, very dynamic and i think that's part of your work looked at that didn't it um and then obviously from a clinical point of view there are plenty of platelet problems um both overactive and underactive platelets that, that can cause cause problems to patients do you want to just go over a few of those for me Yes, so I mean, uh, there are many platelet uh, disorders. So um, there are people with immune thrombocytopenia where they have very low platelet counts. Um, so you kind of have to have a critical mass of the number of platelets to be able to um, clot properly. But in these patients, you actually do see that their platelets, um, some of the patients are have um, more reactive platelets. So it might be some kind of like compensatory mechanism. You have lower numbers, but actually they're more reactive. Um, so patients with um, thrombocytopenia can actually uh, have a higher incidence of um, thrombotic events like heart attacks and strokes. Um, and then you have in cardiovascular disease, platelets are generally just more active um, and the underlying mechanisms for that aren't fully known, but most people think it's due to um, more um, inflammatory molecules being around and just causing higher levels of platelet activation. Okay, it's really interesting. There's plenty of... Uh plenty of targets for sort of clinical development isn't there yes definitely um, so let's get on to your work then um just tell me how you got into platelets and what you did before your phd yeah um so um i did my undergraduate degree at the university of east anglia um in biological sciences um and then after that i um did a master's at queen mary um in london um in vascular and um vascular inflammation and during that time, I did my master's project looking at the effect um, of zinc on platelets um, and kind of fell in love with platelets at that time. Um, and then after my master's, I took a year out from research and I worked, uh, I had two jobs, one working for the Royal College of Benefitists in their grants department, um, which was really interesting to see kind of the other side of science, fun science funding. Um, and then I worked uh, for L'Oreal and UNESCO running there for Women in Science Fellowship Programme for 2016, which was really cool as well. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, so it was really nice to hear stories from women that are um, trying to establish their own labs um, and kind of hear like triumphs, not just negative things about science funding. Yeah. Um, and then I came back to Queen Mary and started my PhD in 2016, um, looking at platelet aging. Um, so I did my PhD with Tim Warner. Um, um, so we're based at the Blizzard Institute um, of Queen Mary, which is in Whitechapel. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I finished my PhD last year and I'm still doing, um, still in the same lab doing a postdoc. Um, so yeah, we're just continuing the platelet aging story. Okay. What does zinc do to platelets? 
Um, so they, zinc is a very underappreciated uh, thing in platelets, um, but they think, um, so calcium is very, very important for um, uh, platelet activation, but zinc also has a role in platelet activation and they have um, stores of zinc within them. Fair enough. Um, it sounds like you had a pretty varied career, sort of in a circuitous route to where you want to be, which I love. I yes. love, and it gives you that gives you that background and context, doesn't it? This um, L'Oreal and uh, UNESCO job. I mean, what yes. what did you learn from that? Is there stuff that you can take forward to your career? Because obviously you're a woman in science, and and uh, there are, there are clearly still still big barriers. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it just it made me realise how resilient you have to be to be. I'm not just a woman in science, just to be in science, you need to be resilient because yeah. there's so much rejection and there isn't enough grants for everyone. So you have to have a certain level of resilience, but just to hear like the passion of the women that were there was just incredible. And the stories you to the point where they got to how they got there were just so varied and it doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. Like, as long as you're passionate you can see that so much and I think if you if you're not passionate about science there's no point in doing it um and I think that's what I've really learned like all the while I'm passionate about science then I'm gonna give it a good go you must have met a few inspiring people then yes yeah there was one particular woman who um that her story will always stick with me that she was um she submitted she was pregnant with her second baby and she uh, submitted her revisions of a paper on a Friday evening and she went into labour like four hours later. And I was just like, that's absolutely wild. Yeah, it's amazing, amazing. Doing that, well, you know, my, my wife's just given birth and uh, I assure you, she was probably in no fit state to do that a, a day before. <clears throat> to be fair to her, she is doing a, doing a master's and doing interviews and things, but um, yeah, the day before is, uh, is very impressive. Yeah. I think... Um, <laughs> I think women have a, have a have a much more difficult route into science for for lots of reasons, not just the not just the childbirth angle. Um, that's a shame because clearly there's lots of ladies like you doing amazing stuff. Um, before I dig myself into a massive hole, we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. Um, fab. So, um, 2016 you started the PhD, and just you got into vascular information for this masters how, how yes. did you find that was that something you sought out or was it just sort of look at the drawer or right place right time um so I when I finished my um undergrad I was kind of not sure what I wanted to do um and I had enjoyed the lab work I'd done at uni but I was like I'm not I don't think I can commit to another three years like currently so I was like well if I do a master's that's got a like a large research portion then I can kind of see how like how I enjoy that um and the master's I got actually was a medical research council funded master's um so um which was really really great because yeah. master's are very expensive <laughs> so um yeah I was very lucky to get a funded place for that did you seek out vascular information specifically was that the thing you were interested in um, not specifically I knew that um I wanted to move more in a kind of human focus so my um undergraduate project was looking at a bacteria called Schuonella onodensis um and trying to determine the orientation of a protein that is involved in electron shuffling um and I enjoyed the lab part of it but I just wasn't 
overly keen on the topic okay. so I knew I wanted it to have more of a human focus um so I just looked to see what was available good so talk me through this PhD so the the, the paper that I that, that stoked my interest on Twitter was all to do with platelet aging and and actually it's a, it's a really obvious question what happens when platelets get older and certainly from a clinical focus it's important for both sort of natural disease but also for transfusion um yeah. so that the, the paper um is entitled proteome and functional decline as platelets age in the circulation by you as first author and timothy warner as final author um tell me where the idea came from to to do this whose whose idea was it um, so the work actually began far before I um, joined the lab. So um, I'm joint first author with Melissa Heyman. So she did her PhD on it as well. Um, but the idea really um, started with Tim and Paul Armstrong, who's also joint senior author. Um, and they, there are lots of observations that um, in d diseases such as diabetes and chronic kidney disease, um, platelets have a shorter lifespan so in a healthy person it's approximately 10 days um but in um, diabetes or chronic kidney disease for example it can be as short as five um so um nobody knows why nobody knows the mechanisms driving this increased platelet turnover but what is important here is that we see that the platelets are more reactive in these diseases so there have been many associations made between the um, platelet lifespan and um, platelet reactivity but all of this has been done in disease so we wanted to try and understand whether the reactivity of a platelet changes um, as they age in a healthy person and whether the composition of them changes um, okay. so um, that's where the work started um, so you had to start in mice because you needed a marker of platelet age is that right um so essentially the work began in parallel in mouse and human. Um, so um, we, so in the clinic, um, uh, you can measure the age of a platelet by um, measuring what's called the immature platelet fraction. Um, it's quite common um, as like a clinical marker. Mm -hmm. And the way that that is measured is using um, nucleic acid dyes. So platelets don't have a nucleus. Um, which means when they're released from the megakarrier site, they're packaged with essentially everything needed to maintain their function throughout their lifespan in the circulation. Um, and um, this includes a small amount of RNA, um, but the RNA is rapidly degraded or translated um, once they're released from the megakarrier site. Mm -hmm. So essentially you have a population of platelets that have varying amounts of RNA with the most newly formed or released from megakaryocyte with very with higher levels of RNA um, and then it uh, declines so this is what the um, they're called Sysmex machines that's what they use to measure the immature platelet fraction so we've kind of taken that principle and we've applied it to being able to study platelet age so we use a nucleic acid dye called Bisel orange to differentiate between the most newly formed and the older ones um, but we've also done um what's called temporal labeling in mouse so we sequentially inject antibodies to track the population so what does the the mouse work give you that you didn't have before that's the bit i struggle um, to understand so the mouse work basically is a proof of principle um some people don't agree that using nucleic acid dyes is the best way to determine a young and old platelet 
but it's the best we have that we can do in human um, currently. And we're really trying to find better markers of platelet age, but until we kind of do more in-depth analysis, we just don't have it. So we wanted to use the temporal labeling to show that the in mouse, that it correlates with the thiazole orange so that we can show that what, what we've done in humans is the same in mouse, basically. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and then I, I think the first thing you did was to look at RNAs, wasn't it? Yeah, so we just wanted to confirm that the populations of platelets that we were isolating, the ones with the high levels of RNA and the ones with the low levels of RNA, actually okay. had high levels of RNA and low levels of RNA. And that's what you found, I understand. Yes, and then you looked yeah. in more detail about which mRNAs or which RNAs were, were higher and lower in, in young and old platelets. Yes, we just did we just did a small panel of RNAs just, just to prove that um, they were different. So we looked at, um, I think it was um, platelet factor for tubulin and um, the integrin alpha-2b, um, just because they're platelet specific. Um, okay. We know that they have a lot of them and we see that the young platelets have much higher um, levels um, of the RNA so we were really confident that what we were sorting so we used um, uh, fluorescence activated cell sorting um, what we sorted was truly a population with high RNA and low RNA. Fine um, and then did you go on to look at you went to look at pro proteomics so you, you looked at yes. 500 600 proteins that were different between young and old platelets. Do you, do you go into that a bit more detail? Because I think this was this was fascinating. So some some the old platelets downregulate some proteins, but but even then some proteins are higher in the old platelets, which is which is uh, challenging to explain. Yeah. So um, we decided a good way to kind of get like a global picture of what was happening um, during this aging process was to look at the proteome. Um, so we did this in collaboration um, with a group at University College Dublin. Um, and so we um, were able to detect um, just under 600 proteins within our samples, which is, is actually lower than like, the published um, amount within platelets. They have thousands, but the sorting technique is just very laborious. So our samples weren't, um, there just weren't loads of platelets there, basically. Um, and what we found was there was a... Um, significant change in the expression of um, just under 80 proteins um, between the young and old. And the majority of those proteins were higher in the young platelets. Um, but there was a small subset of proteins that were um, higher in the um, old platelets. But this is all relative because the old platelets also just have less protein so they about they halve their protein content as they age. So it's all a relative kind of change, if that right, makes sense. Okay. So it, this, those proteins are relatively more retained in uh, the old platelets, okay. as opposed to there's a massive upregulation in the, their expression. Does that make sense? That was going to be my question, because I think you said somewhere there's 78 out of 583 proteins were different. But if you're saying that, that yeah it's a relative change okay that makes that makes a lot more sense so globally platelets are losing protein throughout their lifespan but they're sort of selectively retaining some exactly how, how do yeah. they do you know how they do that how do they retain sort of the, the apoptotic proteins is there any any clue to that well um i'm not sure they're necessarily 
retaining them because the proteins that were higher in well relatively higher in the old platelets were actually more circulating proteins so it's like hemoglobin and fibrinogen and complement proteins okay so it could just be that they're taking them up from the circulation it could be that they were bound to the surface of the platelet we don't know where on the platelet that protein was okay um but we know that platelets take up a lot of protein, so it could be even that they're taking them up um, and endocytosing them. Um, so I think that's probably the most likely um, explanation. However, there is a um, couple of papers have been published on the transcriptomes of young and old platelets. And in those papers, um, they show that they have um, increased transcripts for complement proteins in the old platelets. So maybe they are selectively retaining transcripts for complement proteins and that then they're being translated later okay. throughout their life. Um, okay. But we don't know for sure yet. <laughs> Fair enough. And you guys didn't go into detail on the transcriptomics. It was more the proteomics, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Fair enough. We... That's the, uh, I guess that's you. I guess that's the next job, is it? Yeah, well, I mean, there are many, many questions we need to answer. <laughs> we'll touch on those later. That's great. Um, and then I think the most intriguing thing in your paper is, is touching on mitochondria. Um, tell me about that, because it looks like old platelets seem to lose mitochondria, but where do they go? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and one that we don't know the answer to yet. Um, but um, so platelets have a very small number of mitochondria compared to other cells. They only have around 10. Um, whereas other cells have huge networks um, and they're also very unusual in that they form very punctate singular mitochondria um, and really the answer is we don't know where they're going there are several possibilities um, it could be that they're um, experiencing um, stress during their um, uh, life during the circulation um, and being degraded through mitophagy um, because you don't want damaged mitochondria um, within a cell mm. because it will just cause a lot of problems or it could be that they're being released um, in vesicles or just straight out in free uh, mitochondria um, so there's been quite a bit of work recently being done on extracellular vesicles in general and um, I myself have done some work looking at mitochondria can, uh, encapsulated within um, platelet microvesicles um and there's also been papers showing that there are just free mitochondria within the um bloodstream and that they think that they are deriving from my um from platelets hmm. um which is pretty cool do they what does that have some kind of physiological role do they, those mitochondria going somewhere and doing something is that like a reservoir of mitochondria for the cells yeah so again nobody knows right now but could be yes um so there's a lot of um, work being done recently about mitochondrial transfer between cells um so it could be that they're being taken up by other cells um what they're doing once they're there is a really interesting question because they're so small whether they would actually have an impact on the mitochondrial network in another cell is a very interesting question whether they might might just be you know broken down and then the individual parts recycled within another cell and used um okay. or i mean they could just be taken up by other cells just to get them out of the circulation because you probably don't want too many mitochondria just floating around in your bloodstream um 
Fair enough. Why? Why not? Um, I mean, so that mitochondria are known as damage-associated molecular patterns, um, which basically just cause inflammation, and that's not something you're going to want long term. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so not only do platelets seem to uh, lose proteins and relatively gain proteins as they as they age, their, their functionality is reduced as well. And, and I guess that makes sense, doesn't it? But you guys have gone on and sort of really shown that in a bit more detail. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So um, as I was saying, the, um, there have been associations made between platelet lifespan and um, platelet reactivity for a long time but it's always been in disease and there's always there's so much else going on in disease you don't know whether it's the environment that's affecting the platelet or whether it is actually the platelet itself that is changing um, but we have shown that um, uh, young platelets are more reactive than old platelets um, everybody says that they're hyperreactive, but we really don't like that term in our lab yeah. because if it's born that way from a megakarya site, we think that is the function it has, and then that function declines mm. as they age. Um, so we show that um, young platelets, when we activate them, they have much higher levels of P-selectin expression. So um, that's involved in alpha granule release. Um, we also show they have um, a much higher um, capacity for calcium signaling, which is important for pretty much all platelet activation pathways. Um, we show that they um, have a greater ability to adhere and spread um, on fibrinogen, um, and they cover a much larger surface area. So we think they have basically the structure of them um, is as it as they age, the structure of the pl uh, platelet kind of loses its integrity and they seem to be uh, losing some of their cytoskeletal proteins and the proteins needed for cytoskeletal rearrangement. Mm -hmm. okay. um, but what's particularly interesting is that we see that if we um, take young and old platelets and combine them back in equal proportions, so we have a sample that's got 50% young platelets and 50% old platelets, and then we activate them, the young platelets um, about 90% of the time form a core of the aggregate and then the old platelets bind to the periphery of it hmm. so it just seems that like the young platelets are just very rapid at responding and if they have more mitochondria and a much more complex structure of their cytoskeleton it kind of makes sense that they would be because they can drive that um, activation response whereas the old platelets are probably just a bit slower yeah do you think this explains any sort of clinical phenomenon that we see? So you mentioned ITP at the start. Now, yes. from some clinical um, uh, context, patients with ITP can have single figure platelet counts. So normal platelet count is between 100 and 450 times 10 to the 9 per litre. Um, a patient with ITP can have platelet count two. I was explaining that to patients. You haven't got two platelets. You've got two. Yeah. Billion <laughs> don't worry, yeah. don't worry. Um, and they tend not to bleed catastrophically which is which is strange when you compare them with some with an inherent platelet dis disorder and and my feeling as to why that the case why that's the case is because their bone marrow is probably churning out billions of platelets and probably high sort of hyperactive churning out all these lovely um brand new platelets which aren't hyperactive um, but I guess there's a there's a balance. You've lost that balance of having the old platelets around that maybe mitigates some of that hyperreactivity. Apologies, apologies for the terminology. Yeah, it's fine. Um, <laughs> which perhaps you know means that they don't bleed and perhaps explains the thrombosis 
am I, am I talking absolute rubbish or is that? No, that makes complete sense. So in ITP, you often see a much higher immature platelet fraction, which is indicative of increased platelet turnover. And um, so the, they're likely being cleared much quicker from the circulation and the megacaricides are probably churning out more platelets. And if they've got a shorter lifespan, they could be packaging more granule content or they could be packaging more mitochondria or something into them to make sure that when they're needed, they're going to be very active. Because if you have lower numbers, then you, you still need them to activate. Okay. Um, I think ITP is a very complex um, disease because all patients present differently. Some people have low platelet counts and are fine. Mm. others bleed loads and then you have the increased risk of thrombosis yeah. so i think it's it's kind of hard to understand it as a singular disease and the main thing for patients is is completely underrated is fatigue mm. um the amount of patients that say they're fatigued and it's a well-recognized symptom and no one can really explain it and no one can really do anything about it but often patients will say well i know my platelets are low because i'm feeling so tired and I guess that may come down to the inflammatory sort of process and just having yeah. that autoimmune process on board. But we definitely need a bit more work on it um, yeah. because as, as medics, often I say to patients, look, you'll see most doctors and all we give it, all we care about is your platelets. But really for you, it's fatigue, isn't it? And then they'll say yes. And, yeah. and they find that, find that really challenging. So you're right. It is a really complicated disease and really interesting disease. Um, and especially, you know, when you think about how the, the medications like thrombopoietin mimetics work, you know, it doesn't really make sense from an, from an autoimmune disease for that to happen. And I've seen some talk, I've had a talk from Drew Proven, who was talking about the sort of the immunomodulatory effect of those, of those mm. drugs as well. So yeah, it's certainly something to think about in the future. Um, I guess the other sort of clinical, clinically relevant thing that I thought reading your paper is all to do with transfusion. Um, yes. So platelet transfusion is something that we do. Um, to be honest, if we took a, if you if you had a, a a bucket of things in medicine that had you know lots of evidence and not much evidence this would be towards the bottom of the bucket of not having having much evidence yeah. um and when we donate platelets clearly we're taking off um taking off a mixture of old and, and, and healthy then we're sticking them in a bag at 22 degrees we're keeping them agitated and then they age over five to seven days um have you had any thoughts about plate transfusion and, and things you might want to look at in the future and, and whether that explains why plate transfusion doesn't really do very much sometimes? Yeah, so I think it's a very interesting area of research to platelet transfusion and some groups are looking at, um, into it and we're actually collaborating with some people to look at transfusion bags. Um, but I think the, what is known is that in a platelet transfusion bag that after a couple of days, the platelet count drops a lot um, and it's largely because it's replaced by extracellular vesicles um, and I guess in a system where you can't clear platelets that would be coming to the end of their lifespan they're probably just going undergoing apoptosis or something and just shedding vesicles into the circulation um, into the bag sorry but which isn't necessarily a good thing because extracellular vesicles are um, known to have a more pro-coagulant kind of phenotype. So they really generate a lot of thrombin um, they, on the surfaces. Mm -hmm. So if you're transfusing those into somebody, um, I think the 
coagulation aspect of it um, isn't going to be great but obviously people do need platelets um, and I think looking at the storage conditions of them might um, be an, an avenue of kind of reducing the number of vesicles produced. Um, we, um, we're currently working with somebody um, who's doing a PhD um, within the trauma group at the Blizzard who's looking at platelet bags and different conditions to um, like uh, incubate them at, um, over the seven day period to see if it makes any difference. Um, but then in terms of, you know, um, like surface um, receptor expression, we see that changes during platelet aging. So we would assume that in a platelet bag as well, that's going to change. Um, so you might be putting in platelets that actually don't have any of their recept like receptors needed for activation. Um, so it could be just like a mass thing. If you need to increase platelet count, is it better to put them in without all of their kind of activation molecules on the surface? Who knows, really? But it's very interesting. I think the difficulty working with transfusion is that every every therapy is different. It comes from a different person and your genetics are different to mine and your platelets are different to mine, which makes exactly. having a sort of a pure, a pure experimental plan quite difficult doesn't it yeah. um i know there's been some work in birmingham about ev well lots of work in birmingham about evs and um uh, looking at evs as almost a sort of a, a different type of blood product um yes. because clearly in trauma having thrombosis is good um but when you have the vast majority of well many many trauma patients who get thrombosis afterwards it's a real it's a real difficult um balance isn't it um yeah. and i think there's, there's there is some good evidence emerging that plate transfusion can definitely be harmful um so there's the patch study where uh they looked at people with um spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage um was it spontaneous or was it uh yeah spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage um uh, with people on aspirin dipyridamol and other types of antiplatelets mm -hmm. um, and they actually found that it was harmful so they were giving massive doses i think they were giving five adult therapeutic doses of platelets um wow. but they found that this the, the patients that received the the, the the platelets did worse which yeah. is really intriguing have you got any yeah. thoughts on on why that might be? Is it? Do you think it's EVs and age of platelets, and they're just or they're just not working, or it's volume, or? I'm, in all honesty, I have no idea. But the I think we we have a collaboration with trauma the trauma group, and they have always seen that um, they go on to develop coagulopathies, and that's what is a real issue because in that moment you might be stopping them from bleeding which obviously is what needs to be treated at that time. Mm. But then um, they go on to develop coagulopathies and they're really hard to treat. So um, we had a paper out a couple of years ago looking at histones um, um, released from damaged cells. Well, that's kind of, the histones come from damaged cells and then they activate platelets and they become pro-coagulant. Mm. Um, so you might be putting in platelets that are fine from a transfusion bag but as soon as they're in the circulation of a trauma patient there's going to be so much that is being kicked out inflammatory molecules histones that are going to cause platelet activation and the there's a difference between platelet activation and procoagulant activity because we want platelets to activate that is their kind of primary role we don't necessarily want them to become procoagulant because mm. that causes a lot more issues 
and I think that's harder to stop. Um, um, but there are groups that are looking at developing drugs to stop the kind of procoagulant activity. Okay, which groups? Do you know? Um, so the one group I am I know about is um, Matthew Harper's group at the University of Cambridge. They're looking at um, uh, drugs that can target TMM16F, um, which is scramblaze that's really important for phosphated serine exposure, okay. um, which is important in kind of that procoagulant kind of side of activation. So what, I know you're not the expert on this, but well, I'm sure you're more of an expert <laughs> on um, what, what would the plan there would be? Would you be giving that to trauma patients sort of day after or two days after the, um, the trauma, traumatic event? Or I mean, they're not doing it in trauma. They're just looking at it generally. Okay. So, okay. But yeah, but I guess if they could um, put it in trauma, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Harriet, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I, I think you probably tell from what I'm saying is that I, I'm a big fan of talking about things that may be intuitively helpful in medicine, um, sort of platelet transfusions and, and doing things to patients that you think, well, intuitively, this patient's bleeding and they've got low platelets, we should give them platelets, or this patient's on an antiplatelet, we should give them platelets to try and reverse it. And clearly, when we go and do that in patients, it either doesn't work or is harmful. Occasionally it works, but in the in the sort of ballpark of platelets, I've yet to find good evidence of benefit in general. Um, there are clearly evidence. There's clearly some evidence of benefit of platelet transfusion in trauma, um, but I don't think it's that concrete. It's not that convincing, and clearly there's lots of moving parts and things to think about. Um, I mean, if, if you have you got any thoughts about the the clinical relevance of your work and where it might take? us in future do you think it's it's close to coming into some making some kind of clinical impact especially around transfusion i guess i think ultimately what we're doing is very fundamental science we're just trying to understand what is happening in the natural aging process um because we don't know um and as basic scientists that's really interesting for us and we want to know what's happening but obviously it's great if we can have some kind of clinical relevance and we do have collaborations with trauma and hematologists and I think we need to open up more discussions between us to understand like what they want to know to try for us to try and understand that to help in the clinic because we are very far removed from that I you know we don't deal with patients we deal, yeah. deal with healthy people so um we can do all our studies in healthy people very easily, but ultimately it would be great if we could kind of inform clinicians about this process, the aging process, and that might help in the treatment of, you know, even for example, if, if we know that, you know, in diseases where there are, there is increased platelet turnover, they're gonna, they might have reduced effectiveness of antiplatelet drugs. So if we can change the treatment regime for that whether it might be that they take drugs twice a day to kind of um inhibit the platelets twice a day then that might reduce the risk of cardiovascular events more than just taking it once a day those kind of things are they're small things but it could be very very beneficial to patients it's really interesting you mentioned twice daily antiplatelets so the um the sort of international consensus sort of guideline for essential thrombocythemia um, so it's in myeloproliferative disorder where you make too many platelets. Um, interestingly, when you've got a very high platelet count, it tends not to be necessarily associated with thrombosis, but more with bleeding um, mm -hmm. because of a sort of an acquired von Willebrand's phenomenon. 
Um, but interestingly, they, they, they say in, in patients that are higher risk of thrombosis, especially those who are JAK2, um, you can give BD aspirin. Um, and presumably that, that is the reason you want to inhibit those, you want to inhibit those, um, those healthy, uh, inverted commas, hyperactive platelets, um, yeah. as they, as they pop out of the bone marrow. Um, so I think definitely BD antiplatelets has got, a, has got a role, but again, the evidence for doing that is somewhat theoretical. I don't think there's randomized trial evidence that's beneficial because you'd need a massive cohort. Um, yeah. but aspirin's a relatively, relatively safe drug to give so i think people are fairly comfortable with it i have to say in the uk we don't seem to do that or i've not seemed to do that very much um but i think it's a reasonable thing to do it's just whether patients yeah. can remember to take the take the tablets twice a day which is difficult yeah yeah i think it's hard to make patients take their medication at the best of times so getting them to take it twice <laughs> a day would be far more complicated but i think generally aspirin is people are told to take aspirin in the mornings because there seems to be kind of a burst of platelet production overnight so it seems it's it's a very kind of like understudied thing but it seems to be there's a circadian rhythm to platelet oh. production wow um, that's cool. which is why it's taken generally in the morning i guess you're more likely to fall down a hill as a paleolithic man or get eaten by a tiger as a paleolithic <laughs> woman even um in the day aren't you yeah <laughs> have that burst beforehand <laughs> that's fab um i'd love to get you on again to talk about future work what's what's coming what's going on now um so i've actually just come back from boston where i was working um in a lab um at harvard medical school um where they work on uh, megakarrier sites um so we know that platelets age for 10 days but we we're kind of trying to shift our focus a bit towards what happens between the megakarrier site and the platelet um, and try and understand that maybe that that kind of portion of platelet production, um, whether that's altered in disease. Um, so I went to Boston to learn how to work for megakarrier sites. So now that I'm back in London, I will be setting up those experiments in the new year um, just to try and understand those processes. Um, and we're also in our lab, we're trying to understand um, whether there are changes in the surface receptor expression with age um, as a way of better defining the young and old platelets so that we can move away from just using um, nucleic acid dyes um, as the determiner of platelet age. Okay, exciting times. Boston's a crazy place, isn't it? Yeah, it's an amazing city. So many scientists, so many doctors. <laughs> I went a couple of years ago and I think you, you, you're right. When we talked off air, I think uh, everyone's a scientist. Everyone's a, I met this girl on the plane. Honestly, we were sitting next to this girl on the plane flying from Manchester. And um, I said, oh, what do you do? And she said, oh, I've got, I've just postdoc and I've just set up a biotech company. Like what, what is going on? <laughs> set up a biotech company, this massive pie in the sky idea yeah. to secure cancer and things. It's, it's yeah. an insane place. It's I was worried that, I was worried you've got all this talent and a resource concentrated in one place. And what if there was an earthquake or a tsunami or something? Yeah. The whole world sort of scientific efforts scuppers. Um, but it is an amazing place. It's, it, it's one of the places to be for science, I think. But I mean, they work, they work, cra they work crazy hours. So yeah. um, I think you're, yeah. you're in the right place in London as well. Yeah, I think it was it was an incredible experience to just like experience a different culture and research environment. It was very inspiring. Um, yeah. But it's good to be back in London and to be able to bring all of that knowledge back with me. 
Fantastic. Well, this has been really informative. It's been really useful for me uh, going to a PhD in February. Um, and um, we'll stay in touch and uh, if we can help with anything from uh, Birmingham, then let me know. Cool. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been really, really nice to chat. Well, thank you so much to Harriet for spending the time with me to share her really interesting PhD work. I'm going to put a link to her really interesting paper on plate ageing in the show notes. And I will even put that link to a podcast on dinosaurs, which tells you how birds are dinosaurs. There you go. Really cool stuff. And I will see you next time. Don't just read the guidelines. It's for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google, or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.